Welcome to the Maximus Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cam Sapa. As a clinical psychologist, medical school professor, and CEO, I specialize in helping men be better in mind, body, and masculinity. On this podcast, I interview extraordinary men as a clinician would, hearing their come up stories of how they became the men that they are today, and having them share their secrets of actionable advice on how to look, feel, and perform your best. All right, we are back with Dylan Bennon, the CEO of Mindbloom. Um, this segment is on actionable advice. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Mindbloom, the current company um, that you are running. Um, and tell us a little bit about kind of how you got started uh, with uh, Mindbloom and, and what it's all about. Hmm. I really wanted to do something in mental health care telemedicine. Uh, really wanted to increase access to treatments. And I just kept coming back to psychedelics as the thing that had the biggest impact on my life. And the area where I thought the future was just was here, just not evenly distributed. Uh, one of the seminal moments for me was I was at lunch in Manhattan, New York, uh, with my personalized medicine physician, uh, Dr. Andrew Kibber, who's incredible, who does the Peter Atia biohacking mm -hmm. thing with me. And I was telling him about this, and he blew my mind when he told me that uh, you know, he had seen his clients get incredible results with ketamine, that there are these large growing cottage industry of ketamine clinics uh, with incredible research behind it. Uh, and despite the fact that I thought I had my finger to the pulse of the psychedelic therapy movement and was donating to psychedelic research and science and following along, I had no idea that ketamine was a prescribable medication that people were using today. Mm -hmm. uh, I became a patient myself. It was just as transformational as a lot of other medications and there were psychedelic therapies that I've used over the past you know, dozen plus years. Uh, and when it was delivered to my doorstep from the pharmacy, I saw clear as day that we had this opportunity to help people become better people for themselves and others. Uh, if we could build a platform that one, radically increased access to ketamine therapy by making it more approachable so that people would be open to doing it and understood the benefits, uh, affordable. At the time, the average provider was like $1,000 a session. Right, right. Yeah. And so uh, you know, we've dropped the price like 80% at Mindbloom. Uh, and three available. Uh, so you know, for us, like growing up, uh, with a single working class father, uh, not only is the idea of like at the time of using psychedelics to fight my mother's addiction would have sounded wild, thousand right. dollars a session so far out of our price range would be laughable. Uh, but even just how do we get her to a clinic? Who's going to watch the kids? What if we have to drive an hour, wait with her two hours, wait, go both ways. Uh, and so telemedicine has allowed us to rapidly reach over half the U S population. It'll be 70% by the end of the year, uh, including a lot of people who, wouldn't be able to get access to a ketamine center or clinic or provider otherwise. Uh, the second goal in, is in addition to increasing access is to do all of that while building a psychedelic therapy platform and using that framework and modality and not just giving people an injection, sending them on their way, uh, that would get people both superior clinical outcomes as demonstrated by their actual anxiety and depression scores. Uh, and just build incredible client experiences that drive long-term behavioral change versus just short-term relief. Totally. And as a, as a disclosure, I'm an advisor to your company. And the reason is, uh, and I, I don't advise any other company actually right now, and I've, I've advised mental health companies in the past, was because uh, I was familiar with the research on on ketamine and the, fa the reason that it got uh, FDA approved for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression. Um, and I thought the, the clinical outcomes were compelling. And so obviously, as someone who works in the telemedicine side of things, I was like, that's been my whole you know, model for the last 10 years is take 
solid evidence-based treatments and make them more accessible and scalable to your point to, to millions of people. So I, I immediately got that uh, when I heard about it. So um, for those who may be less familiar with psychedelics and in particular ketamine, can you talk a little bit about ketamine? Like how does it work? Why is it unique? And, and why did you focus on that as you know your treatment modality of choice at MindBloom? Uh, so ket ketamine is really unique for a few, several reasons. Uh, one is it's the only prescribable psychedelic medicine today. Uh, so ketamine was FDA approved as an anesthetic and analgesic in like 1970 mm -hmm. and has been widely used in every ER room across the country since. Right. One of the reasons is it's the safest, one of the safest anesthetics you can use. Um, over the past 10 years, uh, some pioneering psychiatrists and researchers began to realize that people who say came into an ER room and got ketamine as a, as a treatment for an anesthetic would leave with a relief of some of these depression symptoms. Um, and so the way that it works is, uh, whereas a lot of these other psychedelics like uh, LSD or psilocybin uh, or even ayahuasca or DMT uh, agonize or sort of potentiate the serotonin system primarily in the brain, uh, ketamine works on your glutamate system, which is the most frequent neurotransmitter in your brain by a wide margin. And at really low sub-anesthetic doses, so call it like uh, one-fifth to one-twentieth of what a child is receiving in the emergency room, uh, it seems to have this effect where it upregulates, well, subjectively, it has these psychedelic out-of-body effects that have emotional and cognitive effects. Uh, and three, it creates this neuroplastic state through the upregulation of what's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is kind of like HGH for the brain. Uh, which creates a state of synaptogenesis where your brain is literally able to make new and healthier pathways and connections between neurons. Um, so for people who go through this experience, uh, the subjective effects last about an hour. Um, it feels uh, very in the background versus um, sort of the foreground with LSD and psilocybin where there can be uh, visuals and shapes and colors and a lot of memories and visions. Um, uh, emotionally, it can feel a little bit empathogenic like MDMA, although not to the same degree. Uh, and so people often feel a deep sense of gratitude that will stick with them, uh, a sense of connection to other people, and even like a sense of unity and purpose. Cognitively, uh, people have a lot of insights that come up for them about changes that they want to make or about um, it could be creative insights, but in a therapeutic setting, it's oftentimes insights into uh, new behaviors or patterns people want to create or patterns to break uh, and gives people a deep sense of clarity and perspective and insight. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a very important point that um, ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist, which uh, is very different than how most psychiatric drugs work, primarily, primarily on the serotonin and dopamine systems. Um, so, you know, even if you're, you know, a lot of this is jargon for those of you who are listening, um, I actually think, you know, ketamine and also ketamine derived through telemedicine is unique and beneficial for a couple interesting reasons. So number one, it, I, I describe it as a very friendly psychedelic, uh, if there is a term, because it only lasts an hour. And so as opposed to, you know, um, psilocybin or magic mushrooms, it can last, you know, four, six hours or LSD, which can last like 12 if you have kind of a bad trip, bad experience, anxiety, et cetera, it's over very quick. Um, and you, and it's also, it doesn't have as much of the lingering sort of effects 
So you can you can be quite functional after a ketamine experience, literally go back to work. Um, and so it fits into people's lives. Um, and so I, I think um, a, a lot of the reasons why I've talked to people socially about why or why not they try psychedelics is is honestly fear, right? Because they're like, oh my God, am I going to lose control? Am I going to lose my mind? Am I going to have an adverse effect? Um, and I think ketamine, both because of the safety profile that you mentioned, but also it's like, look, it's an hour. You know what I mean? Uh, worst, worst comes to worst, you'll be, you'll feel totally back to normal within an hour. Um, I think that uh, makes people a lot more open to it. And obviously, once they've had the experience, um, I think most people have a positive and beneficial effect. Two, I, th I think this is really understated. Um, when you're getting legitimately physician prescribed um, pharmacy derived ketamine, it's pharmaceutically pure. You know what you're getting is ketamine. You know it's free of any like uh, adulterants, et cetera. Versus unfortunately, because psychedelics are still uh, mostly illegal, you have no idea of what you're going to actually, like you mentioned MDMA. Um, if you actually read the DEA micrograms when they confiscate MDMA, half the stuff that's sold as MDMA is not even MDMA. It's like piperzines, caffeine, and a bunch of other things that, or, or they're sort of, sort of analogs of it. Um, so at least with when you're getting it legitimately prescribed, you know that what you're getting is what you're supposed to be taking. And I think that's actually from a clinician's perspective, you know, I don't recommend illegal psychedelics. Uh, you know, from a, from a clinician point of view, because I'm like, I, how do you know what it's real? Like, unless you're getting it validated and tested, which almost nobody does, um, you know, it's better to get it, uh, better to get it from that sense. And then the third thing is there's the wrapper of the whole telemedicine experience, which, you know, you're, you're having a clinician diagnose uh, that you have clinically warranted depression or anxiety that warrants treatment. Uh, they're supervising you. They're making sure that you're taking this experience and integrating it into your life. And so I think it's also very different than like going off and doing it on your own. Not that people can't have good experience, but I do think there's an additional benefit to having something really be clinically supervised, not only from a safety perspective, but I really do think it enhances outcomes when it's combined with a kind of a therapeutic experience and clinical guidance. Yeah. What, what you do before, during, and after a psychedelic experience dramatically affects both the quality of the experience and the quality of the long-term outcomes. Like one, one of the things that we do at MindBloom is um, we're alchemizing both the psychedelics, but also you know software through an application, content, so music, meditations, instructional videos, uh, and human care from both psychiatric clinicians who oversee the medical care and psychedelic guides who do like group sessions, one-on-one -on -one sessions, and messaging with people in order to drive this personalized experience and these outcomes. Um, so to your point, whereas, um, you know, hymns like this incredible platform to increase uh, access to, uh, you know, men's and now women's uh, healthcare treatments, you know, maybe they spend six minutes per client. Uh, we're spending six hours per client across our psychiatric clinicians and guides. Um, so, um, you know, that can have, yeah, like you said, a major effect on the experience for people as well as you know, what they do after to integrate these experiences and actually make changes in their life. Totally. And as a psychologist who does therapy, but also a psychiatry professor that trains people who use pharmacological treatments, I often find that the integration of both is tremendously helpful. Um, so for, for those of um, our listeners who may be listening and they're now they're curious about it, um, how does one know it's right for them, right? So uh, for instance, you know, unfortunately, depression and anxiety are very common and maybe even ubiquitous in, in our society. Why do this versus standard psychotherapy versus uh, a typical SSRI or can you do it in combination? How does someone kind of figure out whether this could be for them? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I guess first and foremost, I want to say I'm not a doctor, <laughs> and uh, I'm a I'm a you know psychedelic believer, a ketamine patient myself, both before Mind Bloom, and I'm a patient of Mind Blooms, um, and I'm a tech entrepreneur. Um, so these are just my viewpoints. Um, I mean, one is um, currently psychedelic therapy and ketamine uh, isn't used electively, so there generally needs to be some sort of indication. Uh, although it's increasingly becoming a frontline treatment. So for people who want to try ketamine therapy before something like an SSRI, um, um, I mean, when you look at like the clinical outcomes in research, it would seem to indicate that those would be the first place you would go, not the last. So, you know, the average SSRI will have a clinically effective result for 40 to 47% of people. It takes six to eight weeks to work. Um, so during that time, you know, know it's going to work. Um, they have side effects profiles that are pretty dramatic. So a, lot, a pretty high percentage of people can develop weight gain, sexual dysfunction, insomnia, suicidality, increased anxiety from an antidepressant. Uh, and for 30 to 40% of people, they'll be totally treatment resistant. It's like they won't even, none of them will work and they'll try like five or 10 over the next year. Um, with ketamine therapy, uh, meta-analyses show that if you just give someone the medication, so just like an IV infusion with no therapeutic wrapper or integration, it has a clinically effective response for 65 to 70% of people immediately with very, very low side effect profile. Uh, and in MindBloom, we're seeing a clinically effective result with our psychedelic therapy platform. It's also a lot cheaper uh, for like 80 to 90% of clients. And similarly, you know, immediate results and, and no side effect, very low side effect profile, very small percentage of people. Um, I think uh, a big promise of psychedelics that we've yet to realize is how to give people long-term behavioral change. Um, but if somebody has a ruminative thought disorder uh, where they're sort of stuck in the same patterns that are unhealthy and negative, that are getting reinforced over and over again, depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, uh, eating disorders, social anxiety disorders, substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, um, you know, there's a lot of research behind uh, both ketamine therapy and other psychedelic therapies for getting people out of that into a healthier state a lot more effectively than existing treatment options. Totally. And, and thank you for that disclosure as well. I mean, I think both you and I, we obviously have, uh, we're, we're biased in that when we provided our disclosures in terms of our financial interests. Um, so we're not necessarily, um, you know, recommending ketamine as, as the treatment of choice, but I do think it's useful to provide consumers with um, education. And they obviously in consultation with their uh, primary care physician or psychiatrist can make informed decisions about what treatment pathways that they pursue. I obviously think both standard psychotherapy, standard psychiatric practice have tremendous benefits and the field needs to expand. And I, the way, when I'm, whenever people ask me my opinion about whether it's ketamine or psychedelic um, treatment uh, in general, I'm like, you know, the, we need more tools in our tool, tool belt. Cause unfortunately the tools that we have are either limited or certainly less effective for everyone, right? Because that's the unfortunate thing, like both uh, therapy and pharmacotherapy um, don't work for everyone. They work for a lot of people, but I think we're gonna get increasingly sophisticated in figuring out who they work for or when they work is another pertinent question. And then we definitely need new tools for those who it doesn't work for or um, new tools um, that as to your point, maybe become the standard of care uh, or frontline therapies over time as the data continues to expand. Well, I also think um, one of the big benefits of psychedelics are going to be that 
So, so one of the shifts I think we're seeing in medicine needs to happen even faster is a shift from like old medicine to new medicine, where old medicine is like reactive, wait till you're sick to try to treat you, treat the symptom, not like the underlying whole body health. Uh, and new medicine is more about uh, getting healthy in advance of getting sick, uh, living life to the fullest and having the most vitality possible and the highest performance uh, so that you don't get ill or sick. Um and I think with a lot of treatments, I know there's some, I think like Peter T and I think there are some other doctors who like do put people on low dose of SSRIs prophylactically. Um, but I think in general, people aren't going to get on SSRIs or take some other mental health and well-being treatments until they're feeling, you know, pretty sick. And then it's actually pretty hard to affect change at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Psychedelics, while currently not elective, uh, they are, you know, they can be challenging and Sometimes, sometimes like physically uncomfortable, but in general, people report a very positive experience from them. Um, they don't have the side effects, short and long term profile, based on the existing clinical research for a vast, vast, vast majority of people, um, and they work pretty effectively, um, you know, immediately. And obviously, people have reported your massive personal and emotional and psychological growth from them. Um, so I envision a future where people are using psychedelics a lot more prophylactically mm-hmm. to become the best versions of themselves, you know, not a frivolous way, sure, but in sure. a way that it's also helping to dramatically improve the overall behavioral healthcare system because they don't get to that state of you know, ruminative thought disorder, mood disorder, or illness. Yeah. You know, and, and it's funny in a lot of ways, both of our companies share, you know, interesting parallels. One is I think, you know, this the sick care system, as I like to call it, unfortunately, because of insurance companies. Basically, it doesn't like to pay for anything unless you're really sick, right? So same thing. Ketamine, I think, has been indicated for treatment-resistant depression, right? So it's like they want people to try other stuff first, even though maybe that's not what the literature is, is currently at least pointing towards, I would say. Um, and same thing, like they, they don't treat your testosterone unless you're below the second and a half percentile, which means 97.5% of people don't qualify, even though... Uh, you know, clearly you're not feeling sort of optimal. The other interesting parallel is uh, I think both of our companies have innovated in terms of the delivery system, right? So I think a lot of the reason that guys aren't on um, testosterone replacement therapy, in addition to the fact that it causes infertility and testicular shrinkage, it's it's an injectable, right? And injecting yourself in the ass every single week is a pain in the ass. Uh, And same thing with, as you pointed out with, you know, these ketamine clinics, Getting an IV is is very invasive. It's it's literally uncomfortable. I have no phobia of needles, but like it's not fun to get an IV just sitting in your your vein for an hour. Um, but you actually use sublingual uh, ketamine, which is an innovation of you know just ha- holding it under your tongue. I believe it's for like seven minutes. Correct correct me if I'm wrong. So um, and I think that's kind of putting pushing the cutting edge because a lot of the research literature has been done on IV ketamine. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of the sublingual form factor? how that's sort of working out and, and are there any interesting findings or effects that you're, you're finding using this new delivery vehicle? Mm, yeah. I mean, so our clinicians are, pres- our partner clinicians are prescribing uh, sublingual rapid dissolve tablets. Uh, so these are little flavored tablets that you put in your sublingual membrane under your tongue or your buccal membrane between your cheeks and your gums, hold it for seven or seven minutes um, during which time we help people sort of uh, curate a positive, expansive mindset with sort of spoken word music meditations, uh, and then spit it out, mind bloom, eye mask on, laying down, going inward with music for a one hour therapeutic session, you know, before journaling and integrating the experience. Um, I think um, some of the benefits of the sublingual are one, to your point, 
we avoid the needle phobia and, you know, having to be sort of hooked up to an IV, which is inherently uncomfortable. Um, two, uh, it's sort of, you know, like one and done, like people are able to spit it out and then just lay back and absorb the experience. Um, one of the things the clinicians have, have observed is uh, early on, there was some very light uh, research around what the bioavailability of sublingual is. Um, and I think they've discovered, which we're excited to publish in, in the future, uh, that the bioavailability is probably a lot lower for sublingual, that you that you can load people up. You need to load people up with a significantly higher uh, concentration of or higher dosage of sublingual ketamine in order to get the equivalent therapeutic uh, and dissociation sort right. of uh, levels of IV. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like our big rallying key performance indicator metric for the entire company is the clinical outcomes. Right. So how are people's anxiety, depression scores trending? Um, and we also look at, you know, dissociation scores and how deep are people getting the experience? Um, and so what we've seen is the sublingual is just as effective, if not more at getting people these outcomes, um, you know, without having any, any negative side effects. Yeah. And, and I think this is the thing that people fail to appreciate because um, they talk about bioavailability in isolation and they say, oh, this, this thing is not very bioavailable, thus it doesn't work. And you're like, no, if you understand bioavailability, even if it's 10% bioavailable, if you take 10 times the dose, that literally mathematically means you're delivering the same amount. Now, it may be considered wasteful, I guess, of the medication, but you know, if it's a reasonably low cost generic medication, you can just amplify it. We, I've actually um, anecdotally seen the same thing with oxytocin oxytocin, kind of the love or cuddle hormone and people may be familiar with that, that results in emotional bonding is not very bioavailable. Um, it's usually it's actually done intranasally for that reason. It's a little, little, uh, thing that you squirt up your nose and, you know, they're usually, usually, usually using like 10, 20 IUs of it. Um, but you can use it sublingually if you have to take, you know, 10 times the dose, it still works. It just, uh, you just have to modify essentially the dosage to make sure that it's available. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that like, you know, as simple as that concept is, it's been lost upon, uh, I think sort of the, the clinical research community in the sense that, look, what really gets people, um, to use something is not bioavailability. You can fix that with the dosage. It's people don't like shoving stuff up their nose. <laughs> they don't like injecting things. They're, they're used to like either. Yeah. Like a gum lozenge or, or a pill that you swallow because it's just easy to do. So as long as there's not any like for liver, you know, first pass uh, by, uh, bypass, uh, you know, issues or toxicity issues like there is with testosterone, that unfortunately is not 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 solvable orally. Um, you know, uh, I think these new treatment modalities, and I'm I'm really glad that you're publishing research on it. Uh, I think is going to push the innovation because as a psychologist, especially a behavioral psychologist, compliance is king, right? Like even if you told me like all the benefits of ketamine, you're like, ah, I got to sit there and IVU for an hour. Uh, I'd be like, unless I have a very strong, compelling reason to do it, probably wouldn't do it. Uh, but I have actually been a patient of, of your clinic uh, and, you know, was was obviously open to doing it because I was like, you know, this doesn't doesn't seem quite frankly painful. Um, and obviously the the cost benefit is kind of more worth it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what the you, you kind of described a little bit of like the psychedelic experience, but. But tell us a little bit more about sort of the aftermath or, or what people find, you know, going through several sessions. Like, what does this do for people? How does it transform their lives? What are you hearing from the patients going through your program? Hmm. So I think there are, like I talked about a little, there are three ways to sort of bucket the experience. Mm -hmm. There's the emotional effects, the cognitive effects, 
and then the neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so emotionally for a lot of our clients, like they haven't felt not clinically depressed or anxious for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Early on, I thought that our early adopters, the first people who would use MindBloom's platform, would it be like mostly Silicon Valley tech forward mm-hmm. dudes who right. <laughs> listen like Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan sure. and uh, and, and that has totally not borne out. Our, our clients are on average 40 years old, uh, about 50, 50 male, female, uh, and they're people who have never done psychedelics and never thought they would do something like this, but have been hearing about it in surround sound from, you know, Oprah and Dr. Phil and NPR, or, you know, Vogue, wherever they're at, Michael, uh, Pollan. And yeah. Michael Pollan and have just been enough pain that they just need to try something new. Um, so for a lot of those people, they have this emotional uplift, uh, this clearing and this connection. Uh, and for the first time in a long time, you know, they are able to actually go out and do something with their life and make some changes. Uh, the second is they have this cognitive insight about the changes they want to make. Uh, so ahead of every experience, clients in Mindbloom uh, write out their intentions So it's kind of priming their subconscious and working with their psychiatric clinician and guide on what they're looking to get out of it, how they want to change, um, you know, new habits they want to make, old habits they want to break, what they want to explore. During the experience, people sometimes have things that come up around those intentions. Oftentimes it's something completely different, uh, but they come out of the experience with this clarity and motivation of what changes they want to make in their life or different ways that they want to be. Uh, Last we are trying to help people leverage this neuroplastic window, which studies show with ketamine can last like three to 14 days um, to actually make these changes in their life so that these healthier emotional patterns and behavioral patterns will stick. Um, so there are like three areas of this, uh, and this is what we call like integration or integrating these experiences. Uh, the first is trying to capture the experience. Ketamine works on your glutamate system, which regulates a lot of memory. And so coming out of a ketamine therapy experience, especially if it's a deep therapeutic experience, uh, it can almost be like coming out of a dream where the experience will start slipping away. Uh, so what clients do immediately after is they write in their mind bloom journal, they send them ahead of time in their bloom box. Um, and that helps them essentially like grab a thread from the experience and start coalescing it into like a ball of yarn. Right. Um, which will both help the experience stick and also give them something to come back to, to work on and remember it. Uh, after capturing the experience, there's like interpreting and making sense of the experience. Uh, so you have this really ineffable, indescribable experience. It's really vague, hard to put into words. Maybe it's kind of jarring. Maybe it's things you've bottled up. Um, and by working with your guide through one-on-one coaching, group sharing, which is really powerful. We do it as a company internally too, culturally. Um, that will help people um, be able to start figuring out, okay, this is what the experience meant. Here's what I should do with it. And here's like my plan for how I'm going to actually integrate it into my life and make actual changes. Uh, and then the third is actually actioning on the experience. And so that's actually making those changes. Um I think uh, our science director, Dr. Casey Palios, who's a principal investigator with MAPS on the MDMA clinical trials and uh, ran like the early Hallmark uh, psilocybin for cancer anxiety study and some of the early Academy for Depression studies and is a pioneer in the space, has this awesome analogy of, you know, if you have the psychedelic experience, it's ketamine or MDMA or, or, or ayahuasca, uh, and it's really enlightening and uplifting, but then you don't do anything afterwards. It's kind of just like you went 
on vacation, said you're going to make all these changes and then just went back to your life the next day and nothing changes. Um, so we try to help people create action plans and try to help keep them accountable as their coach and guide to follow through on them. Um, but I think there's for like day one of that, um, you know, one, one of the things I've, I've talked to like Tim Ferriss about is uh, despite how much progress has been made, like we're still really early in figuring out how to help people integrate these experiences and actually drive long-term behavioral changes that will stick. Um, and so that's the thing I'm probably most excited about at MindBloom yeah. is both the increasing access for people who wouldn't be able to, but building a really evidence-based and, you know, sort of using the scientific method product that actually helps people drive long-term behavioral and emotional changes so that they're you know, completely evolved people for themselves and others, you know, not just having to come back to this medicine every time they need like recharge or rejuvenation. Totally. I love sort of the triple categorization. I'll share a little bit of my experience if it's helpful to folks. You know, one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting is you curate this kind of customized playlist on SoundCloud for folks. And it's really synergistic. And, it, and this is kind of a very unique thing in medicine, right? Like you don't usually do music <laughs> along with the treatment outside of music therapy. And that's actually a very established field in psychology as well. But other than that, like you don't really think about that, but it really does color literally the experience. I remember when I was listening to one of the tracks, there was like kind of like an inspirational talk track at the beginning of it. And then the music is just, it's very uplifting. It's inspirational. And when you're on, you know, uh, going through the psychedelic experience, you, you do feel it and you do feel it in a, in a level that's deeper and more amplified than you normally would. Right. Like I love watching inspirational movies and books and I, I do get sort of uplifted and touched. But on ketamine, it's like 10x that. Right. And so it really does kind of enhance um, the feelings of awe, uh, as like Dr. Kel Dr. Keltler at Berkeley would say, um, in a level that's like you know, beyond even watching the, the most beautiful sunset at the Grand Canyon. So uh, I think that that's very important for people to sort of reach depths of emotion that are often rare or inaccessible, maybe altogether. And I think that can allow people to very much have emotional breakthroughs, whether with positive or negative um, emotions. Um, so I thought that's really interesting. The second thing is I, I really love that you guys incurred journaling. So like when I was going through the experience both before and after, I was like, oh, I got all these interesting thoughts, insights about changes I want to make, how do I want to manage my stress better with better, more adaptive coping strategies. Uh, and I was like, okay, I, I can't lose this. I got to write it all down. And then now I have this, it's in my notes. I can go back and refer to it. Um, and then I think the third part of it, you know, I always say to patients, you know, whether it's psychedelics or otherwise, or even therapy, I always say insight without behavior change is worthless, right? I, I have this experience sometimes. I'll, I'll have this breakthrough working with a client and I know exactly why they're suffering, right? I know the root of their pathology. I know exactly like a perfect conceptualization of the case. And they'll be like, that's it. That's exactly why I'm suffering. And then they'll go, they'll go and do the same thing. But they're, they're need, that's why there needs to be a behavioral plan to be like, okay, great. Now you know the root cause of this, but it doesn't matter, right? You know, it could have been a childhood trauma, but th that it's not gonna change you from repeating the same maladaptive coping behavior without, you know, a lot of other structure and support and, process for you to help that. And I think that's really the trillion dollar question, if you will, right? It's like, how, how do you take these amazing insights and implement it into people's ordinary lives? It's such an interesting challenge I would add in the psychedelic field, because you, you are literally in a different mindset during the experience than when you come back, as you said, from vacation and back to your gritty, dirty reality. Now, hopefully the you know neuroplasticity can help people with that. Um, but I, I think revisiting, obviously, like the notes that people took, uh, 
continuing conversations with guides or helpers. Um, and then one, one interesting thing, I don't know if I ever told you about this, but um, there's really, uh, so my research in grad school is in psychoneuroimmunology, and they did this really fascinating conditioning research where um, patients oftentimes have to take immunosuppressive drugs, especially if they're getting like an organ transplant, because um, you, you obviously don't want the new organ rejected. The problem with it is, you know, like when you suppress your immune system, you're a lot more likely to get sick. And so a lot of times patients, especially like teenagers, and they don't like feeling bad, they don't take their medication, even though it's obviously life-saving um, because of all the nasty sort of side effects. So they did this brilliant, they do this brilliant research where they condition the association between the medication and some stimuli, right? It'll be like a bright green fruity drink or something. And every time they take the medication, they take the drink. And so their brain literally associates, oh, bright green fruity drink with the medication. And after a while, they would just titrate the dosage of the medication down, even like sometimes to zero or maybe like half the dose. And it would, it would have the same uh, effect on the immune system without it, just because the brain associates the stimuli with the response. So it's kind of brilliant. And I think you can do the same thing with, with psychedelics, actually, at least in theory. It, it would be really fascinating if you could almost like classically condition the ketamine experience. And then afterwards, when people want to like read their notes or integrate it or do the actionable work, um, almost like revisit the experience, maybe not a full-blown psychedelic experience, but I, I bet you could get people back 50% into a very similar mind state, maybe even like in, induce some of the neuroplasticity uh, through this sort of classical conditioning paradigm. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things we're building right now is a way for people to like at a view, see their timeline of their experiences and all the intentions they had previously set mm. so that they can go through their journey. I mean, I flip back through my, you know, when it, <laughs> this, this is pretty interesting. I, I was using psychedelics therapeutically like years mm -hmm. before I learned that that was a thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought that I discovered this secret that like psychedelics made me a better person for me. And I shared with other people and I saw hundreds of lives transformed. Um, and when I learned that there was all this research, you know, going back from the fifties and sixties and clinical trials, uh, that blew my mind. And what blew my mind even further was that some of the psychedelic therapy protocols were things that I was doing independently that were out of character for me, mm -hmm. like namely setting intentions and journaling. Right. So, so I go into experiences being like, what do I want to like explore and work on? Mm -hmm. And then afterwards I would journal like crazy, even though I can't read my own handwriting. So I don't ever journal. Um, and so I've had, you know, I've journals going back like way into the past of all the experiences that I revisit. Uh, but there's something like fundamentally true here about setting these intentions and journaling afterwards uh, to drive those experiences. Um, but coming full circle. Yeah. It's really powerful to go back and look at, read through what you were intending on doing ahead of time, what came up for you, um, and it can bring up and evoke the experience. Same with listening to the music that you, you know, did during the experience can, can bring up a lot of those sort of memories again. Absolutely. One of the interesting debates in the field is about sort of like, do you, do you need to have the full blown kind of breakthrough psychedelic experience, right? Because of the, the emotional induction that I was talking about, right? Or can you sort of microdose uh, psychedelics, which is obviously a very hot and trendy thing? Um, how does that pertain to, to ketamine, and, and what are your thoughts on microdosing ketamine? Hmm. Uh, so our, our clinicians actually start people with a low dose, and they, they titrate them up to right. get them to the desired therapeutic dose, as, as you may recall. Um, um, I and you know sometimes people might go over what they find is a dose that allows them to get the most out of the experience. It can be you know deep enough that it can be like distracting or you know, hard to can grasp onto or make sense of. Um, 
So I think it just all comes back to what you we talked about earlier. I think you mentioned it, which is personalization, personalization, personalization. Like, um, you know, all of medicine is going to increasingly needs to increasingly get personalized to get to match like, you know, the right treatment at the right modality and the right dose with the right clinical or medical team to the right patient at the right time for them with their biology and, you know, and, and psychology and neurology. Mm-hmm. Um and at Mindbloom, I think we're still so early here, but you know, we personalize the, who your clinician is, your guide, your music and meditations, um, you know, different parts of the program as you go through it. Um, but I think we're still at day one of figuring out how to, as quickly as possible, get to, and as accurately as possible, get people to you know, the right dose and the right therapeutic experience. Totally. And I, I think this is this is what I'm particularly excited about and obviously excited to work with you at Mindbloom is is really to push the cutting edge of innovation. Um, you know, yeah. it, it's unfortunate that, you know, because of the way that the FDA approval process is, you know, you, you run all these clinical trials for one drug, typically at pretty standard dosages and, and certain protocols. And you, you try to stick to that because that's where the research is. And obviously that's clinically responsible, but it also stifles innovation in some ways in terms of like, oh, OK, like, yeah, what about sublingual ketamine or what is the right dose or what is the right protocols? And this is something we ran into at Amada, right? So when we pioneered digital therapeutics, you know, um, we were basing it off the diabetes prevention program, which is an evidence-based clinical trial. There's 16 sessions, these four parts of the program. Um, and then, you know, but the nut- nutrition information was out of date, you know, and then like nutrition science had advanced. And I, I was like, do we stick to what the CDC wrote? And I, I wrote to them, I was like, look, we're going to follow what we think is the best science. Here's all the evidence and justification. This is the curriculum that I wrote. And we convinced them to approve it, right, as a custom curriculum, because I was like, I I don't feel clinically, ethically, it's the right thing to do, that just because the clinical trial was done in the 90s and it worked, like, we think there's something better. So I'm glad to see that, you know, you're continuing to push forward on, on that front as well. Yeah, it is, it is incredibly challenging to predict the response that people have, though, like, like psychedelics, um, um, you know, you find that, you know, like a, a very large man with a ton of experience with psychedelics, uh, might be a lightweight and, a mm-hmm. you know, a small dose will have a deep therapeutic effect on them. Um, and then, you know, a, a small woman who has no experience with any psychedelic therapies will be an absolute tank. Uh, and will need to have a significantly higher dose, you know, than that large man. Yeah. So, you know, uh, sort of, um, traditional measures of, how to figure out how to dose somebody like it's, it's, it's tricky point. That, yeah <laughs> pharmacokinetics and metabolism is fascinating I, I was just i was talking to someone the other day and, I, and uh they're like how are you feeling and i'm like i'm good but i didn't sleep all the last three nights and they're like why and i was like you know to be honest with you it's because i had chocolate and i didn't realize how much caffeine was in it and i'm super sensitive to caffeine right and for most people like having chocolate or even cups of coffee they're totally fine but as a slow metabolizer of caffeine. And I've verified this through my 23andMe genetic test. Uh, it just hits me super hard. And so if I, if I have too much chocolate, like literally it, it makes me anxious and not sleep. So that that's the beauty of, I think the, the human body, um, stepping away a little bit from psychedelics, uh, but only because I think you're, you're a really interesting person. Who's like a biohacker health hacker. Can you, can you talk a little bit about like your daily routine? I'm also interested in like, what else are you doing to optimize your health and performance? Hmm. What do I do? Um, so when I wake up, well, so if I wake up, there's 50, 50 chance I wake up in the same bed as my wife or a 50, 50 chance that I wake up in, 
the guest bedroom that I intentionally got so that I could maximize and optimize my sleep. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of people sort of working on the margins as I used to do. Like I've tried every sleep tracker, dream or uh, eight sleep. Um, just found out I got orthosomnia where the more I tracked my sleep, the worse my sleep got. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember you and- telling me about that. And I thought it was a good point to share with people like o- overly obsessing about your health can also often be deleterious or negative as well. Uh, and I found that the biggest input into my sleep is do I sleep in my own bed or does my you know wife you know take the sheets three times a night and wake me up and and disturb my sleep? Um, so that's the, that's my ultimate sleep hack. Uh, when I wake up, I put on a, a luminette. It might be my favorite uh, biohacking tool of all time. It's like a white light directly into your eyes. Uh, I find that it's stunning uh, how how effective it works. I'm really skeptical, so every tool I buy, I just assume it's not going to work. And, right. and that has had a, a marked effect. Um, you know, I do my, my routine of, uh, all my morning drinks with, you know, lemon and ginger and turmeric and apple cider vinegar and green drinks. Um, you know, take my 40 vitamins a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. Um, uh, other things I do, I don't sit ever. I'm standing right now. Um, uh, ever. Uh, rarely. And if I sit, I really try to recline. Um, one of I've, um, I played football for 12 years, uh, and I have, uh, like lifelong lower back injuries from it. Um, and working on like my mobility, um, through Kelly Sturette's work, mm-hmm. becoming a supple leopard and also his, his book Deskbound, uh, that's been utterly life-changing for me. Um, and the more I started standing, it didn't just affect my back health, but started becoming clear to me that, you know, if I, if I really buy into the Savannah principle idea that we aren't evolved for modernity, right, like right. sitting down all day is wild. Yeah. It'd be like holding your biceps like this all day, mm-hmm. like eight hours a day, and then wondering why your arms are all jacked up. Totally. Yeah, I've actually done, um, uh, there's some great literature on like this Hadza, one of the last remaining hunter-gatherer tribes, and they like literally measure like how much they uh, lie, um, squat, uh, stand, walk, etc. And yeah, to your point, they don't they don't sit like we sit, right? If they're sitting is squatting, which squatting, is actually very yeah. active. Like it's if, if anyone doesn't believe me, just go try squatting and holding that position for a while. Like it is working your your legs and your quads, and it's very metabolically active. While I think a lot of the issues that people run into is from metabolic inactivity from sitting too long, um, and that's why I do sit, but I I walk probably take more walking breaks than anyone I know, like literally like at least seven times a day, like in, be- in between meetings, I'm constantly walking in order to reactivate my, my uh, metabolism. Yeah. I think maybe like for me, a more interesting question than the things that I do are the things I don't do. Mm, good point. <laughs> um, so like, I don't, like I said, I don't use the sleep trackers. Um, I think they work for a lot of people, but I found for me, I got that orthosomnia. Um, I we talked about this already. I don't use social media. Uh, I don't have email or Slack or we use Microsoft teams kind of for the same reason that, um, you know, we think social media is an issue. We don't use Slack at exactly. Mindbloom. We use discord for the same reason. I mean, Slack was the most addictive part of a video game designed to be addictive and we're going to give it to people to work. I know, I, I know people like it, but I've just watched people in my office ping pong between work and Slack all day as they're getting the notifications and their dopamine system lit up and then watching them unfulfilled at the end of the day as they feel like they didn't get any deep creative work done. Um, similarly, I don't uh, check my email, don't even have email on my phone um, or check messages during the day. Uh, I block out like deep sprints of deep work 
which I find um, at the end of the day gives me this deep, meaningful sense of fulfillment where I've cultivated presence and focus um, and awareness uh, that you know makes me feel like I've really built and created something and not just reacted to email all day. And I do spend four hours on that a day too. Um, I think similarly, rather than like what I do, like probably what I don't eat is probably more interesting. So I don't um, eat uh, vegetable oils mm-hmm. or, or sugar. Right, um, right. So I think I think vegetable. We're gonna look back and see vegetable oils be maybe one of the biggest inputs into the uh, obesity epidemic, um, and then the diet and the metabolic health epidemic. Um, so that's really really challenging to do. It's like call advanced restaurants. I can only eat at a few here in Austin, uh, where I, where I just moved from New York. Um, I have to, you know, cook all my food or I, I do like a weekly meal prep with somebody. Um, what else don't I do? What, uh, what, what about you? What are your hot new, uh, biohacking or, or health hacks? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you, you talked about what not to do, uh, cause most people obviously do focus on the things to do above and beyond, but I actually think from, um, like an ROI perspective or cost benefit, it is really about eliminating the junk. Cause I talk about that with nutrition all the time. Um, now, if you're talking about like being a competitive athlete or you're really trying to push the edges of your performance, sure, we can talk about interesting super fruits like acai or baobab or camu camu or sea buckthorn. I, I, I use all kinds of weird exotic shit. But for the majority of people, the best bang from your buck is honestly eliminating ultra processed crap from your diet. Like that's going to have far more benefit than any exotic super fruit that you can ever take. Well, well what, what do you, so I'm sure you've seen the uh, sort of before after diagrams of ancient fruit versus today's yeah. artificially selected fruit. So where do you stand on that? Like is a banana fruit or is a banana some perverted, like it modern is. artificially selected you know, processed fruit. I think I, I don't so. Answer. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why, uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with Peter Atia years ago and he's like, I haven't touched a banana in years. And this is while I was literally eating three bananas a day for breakfast. <laughs> and I was like, what's wrong with bananas? And he's like, yeah, he's, the ancestral argument, obviously the amount of sugar. Um, but, you know, you, you grow up, this is like right before I was like, kind of like as I was starting, uh, helping start Amada. Um, you know, you're like fruit, fruit is natural. Fruit is obviously not bad for you. Um, and it's not, but you know, when you become more sophisticated about it, it's like, well, the dose is the poison. Maybe three bananas is too much. And then second, yes, uh, it depends on your carbohydrate tolerance and, and all that. All the fruits, that, by the way, I just mentioned are essentially unmodified, right? They actually are ancestral fruits because they're not cultivated on a large scale for farming. And so they're basically the same way they have been for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. So uh, I, I do, I do recommend more ancestral, um, you know, sort of fruits. Um, yeah. but I, to your point, I like that's really to get from like 95th to 95th percentile. The, the reality is like the average American eats 66% of their calories from ultra processed food. And so working on that is going to have far, far greater benefit. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you say the same thing about social media. I'm like, honestly, um, even though the research literature on this is mixed, my clinical experience, um, especially because maybe people in tech are more extreme about their technology use because we're, you know, it's literally the industry that we work in and we're, we use all these tools to a great degree. I think it disproportionately in, impacts mental health and mood uh, in a very, very negative way. And so eliminating, um, quite frankly, uh, excess screen time and media use, I actually think is more beneficial than starting a mindfulness habit. 
Um, mm-hmm. Even though I think mindfulness is great, I literally teach well, like, and practice mindfulness-based therapy. Those are synergistic, right? Like the, the mindfulness habit enables you to realize that you yeah. are uh, in a, you're completely unaware, sleepwalking, lost, like a leaf blowing in the wind, cause and effect of your dopamine pathways just going back and forth, ping-ponging in between these stimuli. Totally. Uh, spe- speaking of an, an ancestral, I mean, I think to me, that's maybe my most like underlying sort of uh, hypothesis and how I guide some of these decisions. Um, so even, even in Mind Bloom, I kind of think we're helping people get relief from these symptoms. And that's what a lot of our clients like are looking for from us. But I think our raison d'etre in addition to increasing access is to help them find meaning, purpose, and connection, because those are the, a lot of the things that uh, we're losing with modernity. Um um, so a big thing I'm doing with that is um, I just moved down to Austin, Texas seven months ago after 10 years in Manhattan. Um, and the primary driver was to build like a co-living community with a, a bunch of friends. Um, so our V1 is like all moving into the same neighborhood here where we can have a lot of shared communal meals, see each other. Um, don't yet have kids, but we'll soon like raise our kids together and have like open households where people can you know, come in and out and, and intermingle um, because we know that loneliness is like one of the biggest drivers of, um, you know, sort of um, dying earlier and, and illness. Um, and we see that despite people's like personality traits, uh, people consistently get lonely as they get older, as they like splinter off. Um, and so I think we have to be really intentional about protecting against long-term loneliness and propinquity or how close you are to other people is like one of the biggest drivers of how much social time you spend. Um, so that's, that's one of the big things I'm doing, which I guess isn't the elimination of something because it's a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But it's a great point. You know, the funnily, I think that's, that's one of the, the, the few benefits of colleges. We were talking about the downsides of education is, is yeah, I, running into I, people. Sorry. I, I, the education in college was a huge negative and I was lucky that I would fallen into debt because I had a scholarship and I had in financial aid. Um, but I met like, I met my wife in college yeah. in street. <laughs> uh, she's also a head of engineering in mind bloom. So I guess I met my, I was recruiting already. <laughs> um, uh, I met so many like family close friends that have been like surrogates for me for maybe not having a large family growing up. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of conflicted on college because right, right. the social aspect completely transformed my life and was, um, you know, a dream come true. Uh, so I'm grateful for every day, but the you know, education component was a waste of my time. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I, I'm saying in a lot of ways, you know, it sounds like what you're kind of intentionally trying to, to, to recreate it, it is a sense of community or, or maybe an ancestral village, if you will. Right. Um, and it, I think it's cool to see because unfortunately, I think, yeah, this, the, whether it's like the urban density or suburban life, it's really not optimized for social connection. I certainly remember living in buildings where I like, you don't know your neighbors, you know? Um, and even I remember, you know, getting a, a condo in San Francisco, I created a Facebook group so that my neighbors could connect with one another. Um, and despite a lot of the efforts that we do, um, it's, it's not the same as if you come from especially more traditional cultures where, yeah, exactly. It's an open door policy. You really, you know, your level, it's not just knowing your neighbors, but yeah, like they'll raise and even punish your kids. And that's like, okay to do because they know that like there's shared values, uh, and, and shared parenting even, um, it's just so risky for your neighbors to be strangers. <laughs> like, like there, there's just so much uh, variability and volatility in, in humans. And even if you're friendly with everybody, the likelihood that you will be friends with somebody is not that high. Uh, to, to your point about uh, getting to know your neighbors, 
when when we lived in in uh, Lower East Side, mm-hmm. uh, we had just one neighbor on our floor, just the two of us. Um, and there's this couple, and we were kind of friendly with them, and they moved out. And we said that was a huge missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like we might have been able to become awesome friends with them. The next neighbors, let's make a huge concerted effort to like build connection with the one person who lives next to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when uh, he moved in, we wrote up, I wrote up this, you know, really nice, thoughtful note about welcome to the neighborhood. So happy to have you. Here's our number. Like, let's go out for a bite or a drink sometime and slid under his door. Never heard of him. Yeah, <laughs> Months later, saw our new neighbor in the elevator. I was like, oh, did you know? He's like, yeah, I'm a lawyer. I'm like really busy. And we're like, oh, all right. This is, this is why, why we want to intentionally live next to people that we know and love because it's just too risky. <laughs> yeah, and it's just too much serendipity, I think, that needs to happen sometimes to like to force it to your point. Um, but, you know, I think that's the cool thing about what we're seeing, right, is, you know, just as we were talking about cutting edge medicine, um, I think this is a cutting edge medicine, right, uh, to kind of almost re- return to uh, whether it's ancestral or maybe just like social tradition, um, because, you know, we've we've evolved and uh, these these, you know, in certain ways. And the farther I think we stray from sort of nature and natural things, um, uh, the harder it is for us to lead uh, lives of satisfaction. So um, I I think you're a great role model, by the way, uh, for our listeners, both in terms of like, you know, professionally, the course that you've taken in your life, uh, and especially kind of finding a path that's more aligned with meaning and contribution to greater society. Uh, but also in terms of uh, what you don't do, uh, which is which is a refreshing contrast to, to, you know, especially to hear from a biohacker that does many things. And it sounds like you do both. You, you do a lot of like interesting the biohacky stuff, too. Uh, but but it's 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 refreshing and honestly here like, yeah, that a lot of the benefit may quite, quite frankly come from what you don't do. So hopefully that's a lesson that our, our, our viewers and, li- and listeners can take home as well today. One one thing when you talk about sort of the how atavistic psychedelics can be like sort of hearkening to our ancestral times, you can like feel that deeply. One thing that's really interesting, and I'm sure you've experienced this, is on psychedelics, people often uh, have these like deep human themes that come up. Mm-hmm. So it can be like love, friendship, uh, uh, like contribution or the work you're doing in the world. Um, you know, you sort of see perspective of like what, how your relationships matter. Um, and it's one of the big fans. I'm, if you can, for the people who are seeing this, I'm a huge fan of psychedelic art. Mm-hmm. So I have, uh, two Android Jones pieces, my favorite psychedelic artist behind me, I guess his work often has a lot of these themes. Um, and I think that there's something really interesting about that, that for people, when they have these experiences, it like really brings them back to something a little more primal and pure. So people love doing psychedelics in nature and often come out and be like, I need to spend more time in nature. Um, and I don't know where that comes from, but it's definitely fascinating that we have stuff hardwired in there that we're like layering on top of and have to sort of uh, clear from time to time. Absolutely. Uh, as I like to say on Twitter, the future is primal. <laughs> so. Like that. So, what, so what would you call that? Are you, so you're familiar with cyberpunk, right? Yeah. As like a genre. I've seen like solar punk where it's like, imagine a future where it's not all dark and rainy and dystopian and, uh, you know, metallic, but it's a future that is sort of uh, interweave, well, interwoven with nature and trees and, you know. Uh, so I, so I, call it, I call it trad humanism. So as opposed to transhumanism, which is trying to, you know, like become these weird cyborgs that uh, transcend our human limits. That's why I actually never use the term biohacking, because I I feel like sometimes it's a weird 
access uh, that a lot of the people do stuff that I think is like not super safe. What do you say? Uh, just about, like being healthy. <laughs> yeah. Versus like, I think trad humanism, it's like, it's a, it's really the combination of tradition and technology. I'm not a neo Luddite. I obviously you know, use technology both personally and professionally. And at the same time, I really do try to do ancestral ways. And I think it's taking the best of both worlds. But I think the ethos is that you, you do use technology, but you realize that it's a tool that it has limits and it has downsides. And so you only use almost like medication, the, the minimum effective tool, right? As but just like the minimum effective dose that, you know, if it helps you stay in connection with people or send an invite to your 12 friends to come move to Austin with you and create an intentional community of, of neighbors, then obviously the use of that tool was very helpful to, to create something in real life that's beneficial versus if you're just using it to feel less lonely and create an artificial sense of connection because you you message 12 people on WhatsApp uh, instead of having real life friends, then yeah, I don't think that that's obviously as beneficial. So that's why I call it trad humanism. It's like a combination of the idea there's like, there's no way back, only through. That's right. And, that's right. and uh, you know, use your tools, don't let them use you. Exactly. Yeah, and use it, use it very, very mindfully and intentionally. Uh, and that's why I like, I, I love the metaphor of the double-edged sword um, because I think uh, it, it's literally true. If you think about tools and, you know, I, I would argue like arrowheads, knives were one of the earliest tools that humans ever invented. You had a reverence for it because those things, have you ever seen an obsidian blade uh, or flints that are literally still around that Native American made? They're razor sharp, right? And so when you create that tool, you're like, this is uh, this is something that you you hold lightly, literally, because it can cut you, it can hurt, hurt you or harm harm you. We don't think about our technology the same way which we should, I think social media is the same way. It can literally cut you, it can hurt you in a lot of ways. And so we should have a greater reverence for it, just like a knife or a sword that like, or a gun, where it's a it's a tool that can be used for, for good or for bad, um, but you have to be very careful. Like we don't let people, you know, get guns without a little bit of a licensure or ideally even training so that they don't hurt themselves. Uh, but we don't do the same thing with social media. We don't do the same thing with technology. And I think at least having that attitude of like, Oh, okay, this is something to be taken seriously. Like you don't, you know, let us, less than a 16 year old drive. Why should you give a 16 year old an iPhone with no supervision? Uh, I think is an interesting question that we'll have to grapple with. Makes sense coming from a clinical psychologist. I mean, you think about it even in terms of like instruments of war today, like are we more worried about China crafting an aircraft carrier or their psyops? <laughs> totally. I, I certainly am. I'm like, you know, if you look at social media, like there's a lot of bots out there. There's a lot of missing, like people don't even realize like half the accounts that they're interacting with, especially that are anonymous or, or fake accounts are literally like, and this is not even conspiracy, right? There's, there's like validated evidence of this, um, that, that they're, they're pushing propaganda, pushing agendas, um, whether it's foreign governments, corporations, there's a lot of fake information out there. Um, and so I think the only way out of that, uh, is, is quite frankly, limiting it. Yeah. I, so, so China does something interesting where they have really, you know, hard, pretty like technologically enabled curfews on video games. Yep. Yep. Um, and you look at that and as somebody who uh, is deeply, deeply aligned with freedom, um, you know, both as like a liberal concept and also as somebody who grew up with unlimited freedom and thought that that was a really great thing mm -hmm. that, that my father gave me that. Um, at the same time, I don't know, our brains ready to, can they handle and manage something like a video game that's, like you said, intentionally designed to hijack your dopamine system? Uh, probably not. So I don't know, maybe we should be taking drastic steps to limit people's um, sort of exposure to 
it's a super normal stimuli that can drive those positive feedback loops. It's, it's tough. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and for viewers who may not have heard about this, when, when I sort of popularized dopamine fasting worldwide, I pointed out this policy that China had instituted into law, right? So literally between the, the hours, I believe, of like 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., uh, video game uh, manufacturers there are literally have to shut off the game. They, they're not allowed to play the game overnight. I think you can only play like one hour a day on weekends, three hours on weekend, so weekdays, three hours on weekends and holidays. So there's literally limits and same thing with like in-app game purchases. I think you can't spend more than 50 bucks without your parents approving. And a lot of people, when I mentioned that, they're like, oh, that's very draconian. You know, the government shouldn't be doing that, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, we can have that debate about whether it's the government's role, but I, someone should be doing it, whether it's the parents um, or, or, or someone else. But we do know that it's clearly a social good to at least have limits uh, on things that are highly, highly addictive. Um, if we can't certainly ban them outright. Yeah, I don't, I don't have children yet, so I have really like low believability here with this view. But my fringy working hypothesis right now is that my parenting philosophy is going to be centered around like pretty non-directed parenting. That like mm. we can barely affect change in ourselves. It's like near impossible to affect change in other people. And that once your kids, especially like adolescents, like your, your effect on them is very minimal. However. It's your, maybe my job as a parent to extricate them from addiction as mm -hmm. much as possible. Yeah. Um, because if they're getting addicted to something, whether that's whether that's um, you know uh, addictive drug like alcohol, whether it's um, you know social media, uh, porn, like those are things that their brains just aren't equipped to manage mm -hmm. and handle. And so that's where you have to pull them out. Um, and so yeah, I don't know like who has that responsibility lie? Does it lie on Parents, community, do we really want the government intervening with laws on that? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, going to be, I think, one of the big challenges of our time. For sure. And I, I think, unfortunately, modern parenting, yes, probably the best thing you can do to your kid is to make sure that they, they become an adult without an addiction, quite frankly, or prepare them with the coping skills that when they do go off on their own, particularly in college, this is where I actually see people mostly run into mental health and addiction issues. They're fine until they're 18. They get thrown away from home, high stress environment. And then they fall apart, right? They just don't have the resilience and the coping mechanisms uh, to deal with it. And they, they get into really bad behaviors, unfortunately. So I, I think that that probably is almost the number one job of a parent. You know, Chris Rock has a joke where he's like, the, the one dad of a job of a dad is to keep your daughter off the pole. And and I was like, you know, the modern version of that is it's to keep your, your daughter off of OnlyFans and yeah. uh, keep your son off of pornography. Uh, the buyer of of the uh, OnlyFans, right? Because that that's the two like gender kind of norm, uh, you know, addictions of choice these days. Is you you're either you know pimping or being pimped, um, as they as they would say. So uh, yeah, it's it's I think it's incredibly tough to be a parent. But but one thought I'll add to your non-directive parenting. I do think parents can be directive and actually be very influential. But I have a personal hypothesis about this, and we'll see as I become my own parent is I, I think the two things that are needed in terms of parenting are uh, being uh, authoritative, um, but also affectionate. And my thesis is you can only be as authoritative as you are affectionate. So you can be directive, you actually can be strict and provide a lot of structure and quite frankly, tell your kids what to do, but if their buy-in only goes as far as you love them and you demonstrate that. I think the mistake that too many parents make, and this is the classic uh, fallacy of tiger parenting in my opinion, is you're super strict you push your kids, but there's a coldness to it, right? There isn't the affection. And of course, you know, I think that 
um, it does push people to great heights. And certainly I do think in terms of educational and professional achievement, that does work, like pushing your kids and having high standards, but they end up often you're very neurotic and in therapy later on, or they fall apart if they can't sort of handle, um, you know, the stress given their predisposition. But I, I do think if they feel like, okay, uh, they're very loved, that they're cared for, you do want the best for them, uh, that you can even push your kids uh, harder, but it has to, it has to meet that level of affection. If like, you, you have like, right. You have like two and you have like a Goldilocks zone where you gotta, you gotta stay with him. Yeah. So that, that's the best, uh, it's classic parenting theory is, uh, uh, if you're, if you're, uh, cold, but strict, you're authoritarian. Um, if you're warm, but not strict, you're kind of permissive. And those kids like grow up a mess cause they, they don't have any boundaries. Uh, if you're lacking both, you're just neglectful. Uh, but you have both affection and authority, you're authoritative. And that's the best sort of parenting style. And actually, I, I, I work with, um, you know, CEOs in my private practice, and I tell them the same thing. I was like, in a lot of ways, being a CEO is very paternalistic. Um, and your job as a manager, as a leader, is uh, to obviously motivate and get the best out of your employees, both for their and your company's benefit. And you have to provide both authority uh, and affection. And there's like the radical candor matrix, right? Exactly. Like care personally and challenge directly. This was a fascinating, it's always fun uh, uh, talking to you, whether it's personally or obviously for, for the purposes of uh, this podcast. So um, how can people find uh, you and MindBloom? Uh, you can find MindBloom at mindbloom.com. Uh, we 10x the team over the last year and expect to 10x the team over the next year. So if you're interested in building the future of psychedelic therapy, would love to meet you. Um, and you uh, can find me at Dylan at mindbloom.com because I don't have any social media. Perfect. <laughs> even, even better. Glad, glad you're practicing what you preach. All right, all right Dylan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and great to have you uh, as always. Likewise, Cam. This was a blast. Thanks for having me on.